Hi, this is your host, Corbin, and this is your guide for Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever. Now, I have already reviewed Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns, so if you have not heard those reviews and your guide to those reviews, those will be linked directly below, so make sure to check those out. Before we get into the making of the film, allow me to take you back to 1995, yes, the very year I was born, to remember the top movies released that year. They were Seven, Toy Story, Clueless, Heat, The Usual Suspects, Jumanji, Braveheart, Pocahontas, Apollo 13, and While You Were Sleeping. Oh, and Braveheart would go on to win Best Picture. From that year, we have reviewed Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Ghost in the Shell. Links to those reviews are in the show notes below. If you'd like to reminisce more about the films of 95, because there are plenty more to reminisce over, then head over to letterbox.com and make sure to follow me and Alan over there. Links to our profiles are below. At the 67th Academy Awards, Best Picture went to Forrest Gump. As I led on last time, Burton didn't feel welcome backed by the studio to make Batman 3 which he was gung-ho for, and no, that is not a Michael Keaton reference. <laughs> he took the hint and gracefully left the Batman franchise by giving his approval to whatever vision Schumacher would bring, since he would be continuing the story within the universe Burton began. Now, you're probably, possibly thinking Joel Schumacher. Well, you've probably heard the name before, but you could be thinking, what did he do before Batman? I firmly believe Flatliners with Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts and Kevin Bacon, one of the Baldwin brothers, I believe that's what got him the role of director. I don't have any confirmation. Uh, he didn't state as much. But if you look at the art direction, you look at the styling of kind of these, you know, young, dark, brooding characters in this semi-fantastical world, uh, also, a lead with a tortured past. I think that's what got it for him. So he did Flatliners in 1990. He also did The Lost Boys with Kiefer Sutherland also in 1987. One of my personal favorite summer movies to watch every year. I may be talking about that this summer. I've got some plans in the works. We will see. Uh, also did St. Elmo's Fire, another Brat Pack 80s movie. Uh, falling Down, Michael Douglas, and finally The Client with none other than Tommy Lee Jones. So that was the movie he had done directly before Batman Forever. So it was probably an easy transition for him to bring Tommy Lee Jones onto the project. Since then, he hasn't done a whole lot that people would recognize. My guess is his most famous movie since then would be The Phantom of the Opera. It's also one of his highest rated feature films, the Phantom of the Opera 2004 Gerard Butler film. So while the characters of this new third installment, such as Bruce Wayne, Batman, for instance, despite Keaton dropping out of the project, likely because he was already iffy on returning for Batman Returns, not to mention Burton was also gone, Schumacher knew that Warner Brothers wanted to reinvent the franchise after Burton's dark take put parents and merchandising companies off the property. But it should be stated this is still continuing within those two Burton movies. There are vague references. Alfred is the exact same actor. I believe everybody else is, well, no, Commissioner Gordon is the same actor as well. So we're supposed to believe this is still the same Bruce Wayne. It's still the same Batman. It's still the same world but a new director is taking over for the third entry uh it's interesting 
Thankfully, the transition between Schumacher and Burton was smooth because otherwise Schumacher would not have done the film without Burton's approval, he said. And it should be noted, Burton did stay on as a producer, but not in a creative capacity. I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, what did Tim Burton go on to do? He went on to do Ed Wood with Johnny Depp. He partnered back up with him again. I think a lot of people forget about that movie. I personally own it on Blu-ray. I do recommend it. It is a very well done film. Uh, he did that in 94, and then in 96, he did Mars Attacks, which is kind of a strange, campy, you know, um, homage to 50s, like, sci-fi serial stuff. But how did they find the new Caped Crusader, since we knew Keaton, in Schumacher's words, dropped out? Well, Val Kilmer's film Tombstone, which I also own on Blu-ray but have not watched yet, had just been released. Schumacher saw him in it and said... He's our new Batman. It was as simple as that. The same goes for Chris O'Donnell and Nicole Kidman, who was not a big American star at the time, and Chris O'Donnell's claim to fame was Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino. It does appear that Schumacher pretty much had 100% control over casting. The people that are in this movie are the people he just straight up wanted, seemed to be his first choices for playing these characters. Schumacher had already seen all of O'Donnell's films and felt he would make a great Robin. Surprisingly, he also interviewed uh, Ewan McGregor and Jude Law for the parts, but knew O'Donnell was the perfect fit, even though the studio had already signed Marlon Wayans, which we talked about last time. Apparently, Schumacher didn't want him or Billy D. Williams to finally come back and portray Two-Face on the big screen. I think it's because those two were more or less Burton's picks and holdovers from Burton's, you know, creative process and vision. This really does seem to be Schumacher just taking the reins and saying, okay, I want to make my Batman movie. And it's pretty obvious he almost even wanted to do a full reboot of the franchise uh, because when it came time to figure out the story, Schumacher was really pulling to adapt Batman year one. The studio wasn't going for it, and they even said, if you come back for a sequel, we're not going to let you do that story in a sequel either. He kind of gets his cake and eats it too here because there is a somewhat of a reinvention here, a retelling of Batman's origin story, which Burton already did in Batman 89. Burton's going to do it here. Um, I'm wondering if the studio mandated him cut it out because there is chunks of Batman's origin um, on the deleted scenes in the Blu-ray that were not fully included in the theatrical cut. Warner Brothers also wanted a big, bold take on the hero, one that kids and families of all ages could find something to enjoy. So the director said, let's make a living comic book, and that's exactly what he made. He also, at least in my mind, made this a true homage to the 60s Batman TV series with a 90s flair. Producer Peter McGregor Scott said, quote, they perfectly captured 40s and 50s comic era. In fact, Batman creator Bob Kane was on set with Schumacher every other week, providing guidance as a creative consultant, so at the very least that should give some peace to Batman fans. Screenwriter Akiva Goldsman, who is a big name now, felt disappointed a lot of the darkness and psychological components were cut down for the finished product. That's what I was talking about just a minute ago. It has come out in recent years that a nearly three-hour cut that Schumacher believes would have been much better received and presented a darker, more complex vision is tucked away in the recesses of the WB vault. 
14 minutes of that cut footage. Supposedly, there's another at least 50 minutes missing. Well, I guess factoring in that 14 minutes, you're looking probably over well over half an hour that we still haven't seen. Um, there are some included on the Blu-ray. There is an actually a new opening of Two-Face escaping from Arkham Asylum, which makes a little more sense as it wraps around to that in the end. My favorite deleted scene, I will say, is when Bruce goes into the Batcave and he sees a ginormous, like an eight-foot-tall bat fly and come right up to his face. It's it's actually pretty darn terrifying. My guess is the studio saw that and said, no, we already scared the crap out of little kids with the Penguin and Catwoman and all these other kind of nightmarish stuff in the previous film. This one's going too far. Even though it's really incredible, I'm glad it is preserved on the Blu-ray. Now, as far as box office reception goes, when it was finally released, which was just a couple days shy, like literally a couple days shy of three years, audiences did have to wait between Returns and Forever. Not quite forever. They had to wait two years, 11 months, and 28 days. But it really did pay off, as we're about to see. So according to the producers at the time, this had the biggest box office opening weekend of all time. Uh, even on Friday, it had an opening of just Friday of $15 million, which was unheard of at the time. It was number one at the box office, the highest grossing opening of the trilogy, $52.7 million. That's what? That's $7 million more than Batman Returns and a full 12, over 12 million more than last time. It did have the biggest budget of the three at a pretty big budget of $100 million, um, considering the first film started with a paltry budget of $35 million, and only about six years had elapsed since those release dates. It went up against Congo, which um, was dethroned from number one that had been in the theater for two weeks, Paramount Pictures. Casper came in at number three, The Bridges of Madison County, number four, and Die Hard with a Vengeance coming in at number five. Now, it should be noted that Disney's Pocahontas was released in only six theaters, coming in at number eight, limited release. Um, even Kevin Costner's The Postman released in 10 th theaters, coming in at number 13. So they really released this at the perfect time because it had virtually no um, competition in summer of 95. But it did not stay at number one for very long. In its second week, it was dethroned down to number two by none other than Disney's Pocahontas, which did receive a full wide release in 2,500 theaters, about 300 theaters less than Batman Forever. But nevertheless, it beat Batman by like two or three million dollars. It was really close. Um, Pocahontas coming in at number one. So over the long 4th of July weekend, which is kind of ironic because that's when I'm recording this um, this weekend of right here. I'm recording it on the 29th of June. Uh, this weekend, 1995, literally 27 years ago, Apollo 13, which was a really big deal at the time that came in at number one. But Batman did bump up to number two at the box office. It barely beat out Pocahontas. Pocahontas barely beat out it but if you're factoring in you know the 4th of July it comes in at number one also that weekend Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie came in at number four opened 
And this is embarrassing, but the Wesley Snipes, Sylvester Stallone movie, Judge Dredd, which apparently also is under Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, probably one of their other labels like Touchstone or something. That premiered at number five. And of course, from there, Batman just went down by pretty significant chunks. So it really only had one to two weeks of glory. You know you're finished when Species and First Night are beating you at the box office. Uh, Apollo 13 was staying strong, of course, but it's obvious people had kind of had their fun and their fill of Batman. Now, as I mentioned, it did open in over 2,800 theaters, the largest Batman theatrical release at the time. It did actually go on to have, what, the second highest domestic gross of the trilogy so far, with, of course, Tim Burton's Batman at a pretty unbeatable quarter of a billion dollars. This film did gross $184 million domestically, so that's still over $20 million more than Batman Returns, $152.4 million in the foreign markets. That's a huge jump over the $103.9 million of last time, catching almost the foreign markets of the first film. This is actually very impressive, listeners. A worldwide total of $336.5 million. Maybe people were curious to see what a new director would do, what new cast would do. This one also was very much more appealing to parents. It was more toyetic. It looked like you could go pick something up at Toys R Us and not potentially upset your child with some bizarre Oswald Cobblepot penguin thing. Um, so the last film, $266.9 million. This is a significant jump over the other one. This one might blow everyone away. This one got three Oscar nominations, more than the previous two films. Actually, it had just as much as the previous two films combined. Now, it didn't pull off what the only original had done so far by winning an Oscar, but so far, this brings the trilogy up to six Oscar nominations, which I, is pretty darn impressive, actually. Believe it or not, it actually was nominated for Best Cinematography. Um, Stephen Goldblatt did not win. John Toll won for Braveheart. Um, Emmanuel Lubezeski probably said his last name wrong. He was nominated for A Little Princess, Sense and Sensibility, also there. And Shanghai Triad got a nomination as well. Now, Continuing the trend of losing to Braveheart, best sound effects editing also went to Braveheart, uh, went up against Crimson Tide. And finally, for best sound, Apollo 13 took this one home. Um, Braveheart was nominated, Crimson Tide was once again nominated, and Waterworld also received the nomination, but it went to Apollo 13. So what did audiences think of the movie when it first came out? Audiences straight out of the theater gave the film an A-, just a tick below Burton's original 89 film, but a significant bump over the B that Batman Returns received. Now, critics were split kind of straight down the middle. Audiences actually seemed to like it at the time. Critics, as a, at least the current Metascore holds, a 51, which really is straight up mixed average reviews. Um, Rotten Tomatoes critics over time have not been kind to the film. 39% approval rating with a 32% audience approval rating. These have really dropped off a cliff since last time um, by at least 40%. Now, currently on Letterboxd, it's a 2.4. Pretty much 
straight down the middle. Um, once again, over a full point loss between the last time. And this one, oh, this one hurts a 5.4 on IMDb, a major, major loss from the previous two films. So as you can see, I believe this is one of those movies where when it came out, audiences and even some critics were digging it. They were really gung-ho about it, but clearly it has not aged well. People were either returning to it or coming to it fresh clearly think it's not a good movie. And that's what I'm curious to see when I do my full review because I did see it back, I believe the first time I saw it was 2001, about six years after it was theatrically released. I don't know what my thoughts are gonna be. This is my first time returning to it since then, I think. So you're not gonna wanna miss that, listeners. Make sure to click subscribe. And thank you for coming along with me as I've been your guide to the production and impact of this film. Now that you have your guide to Batman Forever, make sure to subscribe to the podcast for my full review coming next Monday. And tune in the week after as we team up with the dynamic duo one last time in Batman and Robin. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.